Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Now. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. On Saturday, July 11th, firefighters in Los Angeles received a call at 424 in the morning. The San Gabriel Mission Church, a 215-year-old building in one of the oldest Catholic houses of worship in the city, was burning. It was the de facto symbol of the mission's nearly 250 years of work in bringing Catholicism to California. The fire is believed to have started in the choir. As the firefighters worked to extinguish the flames from inside, pieces of the centuries-old building started to fall on them. They retreated outside, but by the time they'd finally beat it, hours later, the roof was destroyed. The pews burned entirely. The very next day, Catholics from all over the city came to pray outside of the mission, bringing holy books and rosary beads. Many of them recalled the major life events they'd held inside that church, the baptism of their children, their own weddings, holiday celebrations. Remy Tran found the St. Gabriel mission when he first moved to LA from his native Vietnam in 1993. Here's what he had to say about the church and the community he found there. I heard the news today and it just just broke my heart to, because it's, so much memories that I had in in that church with my choir and families and friends. It just so like feel like home, you know. And that, like I said, that's the only church that my family and I attended every Sunday. However, the San Gabriel Mission was not exactly a safe haven for everyone. Its founder, Father Junipero Serra, has long been considered one of the founding fathers of California. He was also officially declared a saint by the Catholic Church in 2015. The story of his rise to power, and the literal rise of the San Gabriel Church, is also a story of the Spanish conquest of California. Of course, the Spanish were, despite what history may tell us, not the ones who physically erected this church. Indigenous people, many of them Tongva, were victims of forced conversion to Catholicism. The church was effectively built by a labor camp of indigenous people who were subjected to corporal punishment and brutality in the name of Catholicism. Thousands are said to have died due to the conquests. Many of them are in unmarked graves, buried far below the small Catholic cemetery that currently presides on church grounds. To better understand this history and the activists who have been urging Californians to reckon with its colonial past, we have Alan Salazar, a native storyteller, activist, and Shumash and Tataviam elder. Alan, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. To start, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the indigenous groups that lived in the area surrounding the San Gabriel mission. Southern California has always been uh, the most populous area in California. So for thousands of years, uh, there are several tribes that that lived in the uh, Los Angeles area, the Los Angeles Basin and Los Angeles County. But the two tribes that my family are from, uh, or the three tribes, 
are the, uh, the Chumash to the west, the Chitavi on the north of Los Angeles, and the Tongva Gabrielino. My family was brought to the San Fernando Mission starting in 1799, and all three of those tribes were brought to the San Fernando Mission. And the San Fernando Mission interacted a lot with San Gabriel, and tribal people from San Gabriel also came to San Fernando Mission. So uh, there's always been a connection of interaction together, trading together, and working together. And that wasn't the only interaction, right? Um, Obviously, we've been talking a lot lately about a figure uh, known as Father Sarah, who was uh, recently canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church. Can you tell me a little bit about who he was and what his impact was on the indigenous peoples during his time? Well, with, within the uh, tribal community, the Southern California tribal community, he's, he's a very controversial figure. And there's debate on what he did and what effect he had on the tribes here. But there are several things that cannot be denied even by supporters of Father Sarah, that when he came to California, he thought of the tribal people as inferior. So he looked down on us. We were inferior, we were savages. That justified him uh, enslaving us. But there's no dispute that he did not allow any of the tribal people that were brought to the missions that he established and all the other missions that were established after he died to speak their language, uh, to practice their traditional cultural ways. Uh, and he took our land and, and that had a, an extremely negative impact on, on all tribal people in California. My understanding is that after um, a lot of the indigenous peoples who father Sarah, I'm going to say forced to convert to Catholicism, and they, you know, supposedly became citizens of Spain, there was an agreement that they were supposed to get their land back, right? That once they accepted Christ, um, they were um, supposed to be allowed to have their land and the ownership of their land. Is, am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. That Father Sarah promised that if we became Catholics and became citizens of Spain, which we did both, uh, I, was at, I was at a Catholic mass just last week my aunt, who's 94 years old, passed away and was a, a good Catholic her whole life. And she had a, a Catholic mass. And the Padre talked about Father Sarah and how great he, he is and how great he was. I, I can only imagine, but um, how did you feel when the Catholic Church officially canonized Father Sarah in 2015? I was angry. Uh, I was disappointed. but. Bottom line, for the last 500 plus years, tribal people all across America have been abused, raped, murdered, our land stolen, our culture stolen. So we weren't surprised. I'm told that you were asked to give a blessing the day that activists tore down the statue of Father Sarah, which was located in downtown LA. I'm wondering if you can tell me more about that day and its significance. I'm an, an elder on our elders council, and uh, I, I take my responsibilities very seriously. And I knew this was uh, an important event that tribal people uh, needed to heal. I mean, it's difficult for me to speak about this right now. It's extremely emotional. Uh, so I went there when, when 
I was asked to come and do a blessing because I knew the people there would need prayers. And that's what I did. I, I prayed for the people that were there, that, that their hearts and minds would, would be able to heal. After the statue was toppled, I sang a traditional bear song, and bear has healing power. I really appreciate that. You know, it sounds like we have a lot of thinking to do about who is worthy of monuments all over our country, um, and not just about the tearing down of many of them, and we should be tearing down many of them, frankly, but also how else are we honoring the people who are overlooked by the the building of that statue or the creation of that statue or monument in the first place? And I think that's a more a more complicated space for dialogue, but that dialogue can't be done without the consultation and, and frankly, the creation of, of the people who were erased in the first place, right? Correct. I've been going to schools for over 25 years, and I, I just talk to students all the ways from, from elementary school to middle school, high schools to, to universities, and I talk about my family history, what happened to my family. I talk about my tribal history, what happened to the Chitabiam, what happened to the Shumash, what happened to the Tongva Gabrielino. And it doesn't matter if I'm in a third grade class or a, a class of, of college students that are working towards getting their masters and PhDs. All of them learn things that they did not know. That's a sad commentary on our education system in, in America. Mm. You don't need a college degree to know the truth, right? Let's take a pause here. We'll be right back after this. Shopping for life insurance can raise a lot of questions. How much coverage do you need? Which insurance company is the best one for you? How much should it even cost? And at a time when it's more important than ever to have life insurance, the pandemic is making it a little more complicated to shop for it. That's where Policy Genius can help. As a life insurance marketplace backed by a team of experts, Policy Genius is keeping track of all the changes in the market, so you don't have to. They'll find you the right amount of coverage at the best possible price without the headache. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies in one place. It takes just a few minutes to compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. This doesn't just save a lot of legwork. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape for free. So if you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they'll be there to take care of everything. So if you need life insurance, but you're not sure where to start, head to policygenius.com. Policy Genius will find you the best rate and handle the process completely. They'll get you and your family protected and hopefully give you one less thing to worry about. Try it today. Okay, you guys, I just moved to Los Angeles and let me tell you, nothing says home quite like a fresh pair of crisp white linen sheets and I love mine from Parachute. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Parachute. We believe that when we take care of our home, it takes care of us. So what does home mean to you? How have your parachute items contributed to that feeling? Parachute's mission is to make you feel at home. Home is the most comforting word there is. It's where we go to recharge, wash off the day, and rest up for tomorrow. Parachute's everyday essentials are designed in Los Angeles and responsibly manufactured by the world's best craftspeople. They only use the finest materials to make long-lasting, quality home essentials. Parachute linen is light, airy, and casually elegant, giving it timeless appeal. 
Made in a family-owned factory in Portugal, your linen sheets are made without any harmful chemicals or synthetic softeners, so nothing comes between you and Parachute's naturally comfortable fabrics. Visit ParachuteHome.com unholy for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality, very comfortable home essentials. That's ParachuteHome.com unholy. Unholier Than Now was brought to you by BetterHelp. COVID-19 has all of us stressed out, and sometimes it's good to just be able to talk to someone. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. They even offer financial aid. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. They offer licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. The service is both convenient and affordable, and anything you share is confidential. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com unholy. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot unholy. So I understand that, you know, the San Gabriel mission and the San Fernando mission um, are particularly personal to you because you have family connections here. I also understand you were raised Catholic. Can you explain a little bit about that part of your journey and your spiritual path? My, my grandmother was a good Catholic her, her whole life, went to Mass. If we went to visit my, my grandmother, we always went to, to Mass Sunday. Uh, but... <laughs> My, my father uh, was a Marine. Uh, he fought in World War II in Saipan and Okinawa. And when the Padre at the Hanford Mission pulled my father aside and said, Abel, my parishioners usually wear a suit to mass, or at least a nice dress shirt with a tie, dress pants, and dress shoes. And my father nodded his head and said, Thank you, Padre, for sharing that. My father was a plaster. He worked in construction. We lived in the country when we left San Fernando and we had horses. So my, uh, my dad, I don't think owned a suit or a dress shirt and tie until he was about 60 years old. When we went to mass, me and my brother, we wore our good Levi, our good Levi's, our good cowboy boots and a nice Western shirt. And that's what my, my pop dressed. About that same time, I was six years old. Me and my older brother asked my father if we could get Mohawk haircuts for the summer. He said, sure. My father also got a Mohawk haircut. He had very strong Native American features. So when he got that Mohawk, he was a mean-looking Native man. He was a Marine. And when we went to Mass that Sunday, my father had us wait until Mass was just about to start. And then he said, Alan, lead us and go find us a spot at the very front of the church. We always sat at the back of the church because my mother and father were one of the few interracial couples in Hanford, California in 1957. But that day he instructed me to, to go to the front of the, of the ch church. I led my, my, my mother, my father, my older brother, my sister, and walked down the center pew 
with my father in the back with his mohawk, my brother in the middle with his mohawk, and me, six years old, with a mohawk haircut. Western shirts, blue Levi's, good cowboy boots. We walked to the front pew. The padre turned around and saw us with our mohawk haircuts, dressed the way we were. That was the best clothes we had. My sister said you could see smoke coming out of the padre's ear through the whole mass. Because <laughs> he had to look at us the whole mass because we sat in the front pew. So we were good Catholics, but we were raised to be proud of our native ancestry. The moral or lesson of that story is I've been an activist for native causes since I was about six years old. My father was a Marine. That's how he raised me. I don't go looking for a fight. I'm not going to run away from any mm. fight. Your father sounds like a great man. <laughs> he, he was had a great sense of humor. We laughed a lot. That's wonderful. I know that you eventually left Catholicism. What was that part of, of your spiritual journey like? And, and how did you find faith after leaving the church? So in 1969, I was 18 years old. So I was a young man in the, in the, in the 70s. And, and during that time, many young people in America were, were looking for, for something different. So when I turned 18, three days after I graduated, I had a full-time job. And I moved out uh, the next week and uh, moved into my own apartment. I stopped going to Mass and just, I got married the next year. And it was about three, four years later, I, we started our family. And when I had uh, my daughter, my son, uh, I thought, well, they, they need some, some religious teachings. And I actually, we went back to the Catholic Church and went to Mass for few months, tried a few Christian churches, non-denominational churches, and there was one common theme. I have never felt comfortable in a church. Those people are not my people. They, every church I went to, I was treated and welcomed with open arms. I was treated well, but they're not the people I grew up with. I grew up with my tribal family. It wasn't the belief of the church, it was the organization. To me, the Catholic Church is all about power and money, and they always have been. So when I was in my probably late 30s, that's when I started just realizing, you know, I'm a person of the earth. I feel comfortable doing ceremony on the top of, of a mountain in a big green meadow. That's where I feel comfortable. That, that's where my people have, have done ceremony for thousands of years. So it's genetically ingrained in me. About 22, 23 years ago, I started paddling in Shumash plank canoes. They're, they're called Tamul. And I'd never done that before. I wasn't much of an ocean person. Probably been in a kayak two or three times. And I, there was a group of us. We started building traditional canoes. We started paddling in traditional canoes. We started learning how to navigate in traditional canoes. And in 2001, September 8th, we left at 3.45 in the morning to paddle from Channel Islands Harbor, Oxnard, California, out to Santa Cruz Island. And the first crew left at 3.45 when it was dark, and I was in that first crew. I should have been scared. I'm not, I'm not a brave person. I, I have a deathly fear of heights. 
But when I was in that canoe at four o'clock in the morning, pitch black dark in the middle of the ocean, I said I should have been afraid. I should have had some at least a little, you know, intepidation. I I had none. It felt perfectly natural because my Schumann's ancestors have paddled on those waters up the coast of Ventura, Santa Barbara, Malibu, Morro Bay for thousands, for 13,000 years. It's ingrained in, in my DNA, in my tribal DNA. I'm supposed to be praying outside, mm -hmm. making offerings to the plants, the animals, to the sky people, to the stars. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I can imagine, even though you left Catholicism, that your own history with the mission and, and with the area in general uh, must have made for some complicated feelings when you heard that the San Gabriel mission caught on fire. Can you tell me a little bit about what your reaction was? To be completely honest, probably my first reaction was, karma's a bitch. <laughs> there was uh, a, a little bit of joy, but I come from a construction background. I appreciate well-built structures of any kind, well-built, beautiful canoes. All tribal people, the, the Tataviam, the Tonka, the Shubash, uh, they all took pride mm. in when they built their their houses, their ops, their keeches, which are willow frame dome-shaped houses. So, so tribal people, we take pride in whatever it is that we build or make. Tribal people built the San Gabriel mission. So after that initial, yeah, they deserve to have that destroyed by fire. But then I also had emotions of tribal people built that. It's a beautiful structure. The Spanish architecture of the late 1700s, early 1800s is, is a beautiful design, you know, the beautiful structures. So, and then the one thing that bothered me the most is the issue that after Father Sarah's statues are, are moved, and I don't want them removed, I just want them moved. Ventura Father Sarah statue is one of the first things all visitors see when they come to Ventura, it's right on the main street, right in front of City Hall. I don't want it removed. I want it moved. Move it to a museum, move it to the mission, and then do a thorough explanation of what Father Sarah really was, what he did. But after the Sarah statues are moved, there's a bigger issue. At San Gabriel Mission, I know it's in the thousands. I, I, I heard or read that there's 6,000 tribal people in a mass burial at the San Gabriel Mission. There, it's an unmarked mass grave. San Fernando Mission, over 4,000 of my, and, and many of those 4,000 uh, are, are my family members, are in a mass unmarked burial. Well, there's a little uh, one foot by by a one foot plaque that says there's 4,200 neophytes buried in, in this garden area. The church, the Catholic church has the names of all of those people, maybe not all, but most. They, they have more than enough money to, to have a monument like the Vietnam Memorial and list Every one of those people's name 
And if you're one of those tribal people at San Gabriel that died at that mission, that were worked to death, beaten, raped, they should at least have their name acknowledged that, that they're buried at the San Gabriel mission. That's the least the Catholic Church can do. I mean, it's a good point because, you know, there are all sorts of GoFundMes circulating to raise money to rebuild and and really recreate the San Gabriel mission and restore the damage that was done. And I'm just wondering, A, do you think they should? And, and B, what should the Catholic Church do either instead or on top of that, that restoration work? Well, uh, they've had 200 years. They've known about this for 200 years. I should have paid more attention when I went to Mass. I should have read the Bible when I went to Mass. But I'm pretty sure that if you know you're doing something wrong, that's a sin. So in their own religion, the Catholic Church has sinned for 200 years by not giving those people a proper burial. Every padre has a proper burial with a headstone in his name when he was born, when he died. Every nun has a proper burial with her name when she was born and when she died. For over 200 years, the Catholic Church has known that they buried tribal people in mass burials. They committed a sin. They've never confessed. And we don't want them to confess to the Padre. We want them to confess to us. We want them to apologize to us. The Catholic Church needs to publicly ask for forgiveness of their sins. And it's a pretty long list. Then I'll be happy. Hmm. Then I'll be at peace. Before we close today, Alan, I would love to ask, um, absent of us compelling the Pope to issue that apology, which is long overdue, how can we help to support the work uh, that, that you do or help the tribal nations more broadly? There's a lot of ways. Uh, the two big ways, uh, the Fernandino Tataviam Band of Mission Indians. We are currently under review by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We're under review to, to be federally recognized. So a letter of support, which will help our tribal members. It won't help me. I'm 69 years old. It'll help my kids and my grandson. And then secondly, we just recently started, about a year ago, our own Tatapiam Land Conservancy. We are trying to either buy back or get donated large chunks of land so we can keep those lands as nature preserves, as open space. So our tribal people will be able to go to those lands and, and hike and walk back on, on their traditional land, be able to go there and do ceremony and pray. So uh, if you can help our tribe with a letter of support, put the word out that the Chitaviam Land Conservancy, any donation, $5, $100, if you know any wealthy people, um, maybe they can send a, a donation with a few more zeros. 
Excellent. Well, congratulations on all of the work that you've already done. And thank you for the work that you've done. And thank you for holding space with us here today. Uh, You're welcome. And and thank you for for giving me this platform, this opportunity to to express the the difficulties of being a uh, indigenous tribal person in in America today. So uh, thank you for this uh, platform and, and your support. Alan, it was my honor. Investigators are still looking into the cause of the fire at the San Gabriel Mission and hope to have more answers as soon as next week. As part of the investigation, the Los Angeles Times reports that the fire department is inspecting video from a security camera that was pointed at an area where a statue of Father Junipero Serra was standing. Just one week before the fire, the mission moved his statue out of public view, shortly after others of him were toppled over during protests. Many Americans are increasingly seeing their monuments, heroes, and national landmarks in a harsh new light. So many of the sites of patriotism and worship in this country, and all over the world, are also monuments to oppression and genocide. The parishioners of the San Gabriel Mission are, in the wake of the fire, trying to reconcile the two. How can a place of their joy, their spirituality, their community, also be a tribute to pain, enslavement, and murder? I can imagine how complicated this must be to navigate for each of them. Somewhere along the way, though, Christianity became an institution that replicated the same systems of violence its very founder once condemned. In turn, the Catholic Church is rarely an exemplar of the very text it claims to uphold. But if this moment teaches us anything, it is not to seek validation or answers from institutions. All along, maybe we should have been finding the answers in our own communities. Maybe apologies and the road to reconciliation are not as complicated as institutional systems and patriarchal regimes would have us believe. Maybe it's not too late to start now, even if we will never be able to heal the damage done. But perhaps the Christian thing to do is to start somewhere, as a small community. Here's to hoping that a new beginning can blossom from the ashes of the San Gabriel mission. Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Our producers are Adriana Cargill and Elisa Gutierrez, with production support from Allison Falzetta and Lyra Smith. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa, and our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening. Thank you.